let me just uh, add my congratulations uh, to the uh, Kelly family. Um, and it's uh, funny, those that know Christy know that normally she is the one uh, during the live stream uh, that is interacting with people and welcoming people and never ever forgets those that cannot be here in the room with us, uh, but is caring for them. Uh, and so maybe if you are on the live stream now, uh, you know, show Christy some love, tell her congratulations, uh, encourage her to get some rest. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we uh, just... Praise God for, uh, for the beautiful delivery of, uh, of uh, new life. And so we're excited for them. Little Mael Ruth. Um, we are continuing this morning in our study of the Gospel of John uh, called Come and See. Um, what we are doing as we go through uh, is accepting John's invitation to set aside our expectations uh, and preconceived notions and assumptions of who the Messiah ought to be, and instead come and see and experience Jesus, uh, who he is, and what the Messiah is on his terms and not ours. Um, this morning, I want to look at a very famous passage and kind of a really important passage uh, within the Gospel of John, um, so as you're turning to John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 44, um, this is the, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. And um, uh, let me just put some context to this. If you look at sort of the whole outline of the book of John, uh, what you have is uh, a brief prologue in the first chapter. You've got an epilogue in the very last chapter in chapter 21. And then you could break up John into kind of two parts. Uh, the book of signs, as it is traditionally known, where Jesus performs these seven signs, one of John's favorite numbers. Um, and then the book of glory, where we have a great deal of discourse all having to do uh, with around the week of Passover and the evening of Passover. Um, I'm excited to tell you, and there's more details coming, but next month, uh, the week before Easter, we are going to have a Passover Seder here. Uh, a missionary from Chosen People Ministries is going to come and help us and have some instruction, and we'll share a meal together. Uh, and so, um, you can look forward to that. Mark your calendars for March 24th. That, that'll be in the evening. Uh, we'll do a dinner here, um, and I hope that that will enrich our understanding of Passover and put things into its proper context as we read through the narrative in the Gospel of John. But what we have as we come to the end of this first part, this first half, the Book of Signs, is an apex. This is the seminal moment in Jesus's ministry of signs. What we've seen is um, seven signs culminating with uh, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Okay, you've got water into wine and then healing the, the official son in Cana, uh, as well as the uh, paralytic in Jerusalem. You've got feeding the 5,000 and then walking on water and then healing the man that was born blind. And now finally, raising Lazarus from the dead. Things come to a point. This is a big, big moment and a turning point in the Gospel of John. We'll look at one more story from this first section, uh, the book of signs, uh, next week before we uh, delve into the discourse of the gospel of John, uh, beginning in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 13, 
the week after that. Uh, so if you're there, you can read along with me in John chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through verse 44. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he had meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said, on this, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. God, we we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We pray that we would glean from it what you would have for us this morning, that we would learn who you are, your character, your great love for us, just as you had for Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And I pray that we would know that and see that and understand that your great mission to redeem us to yourself through your son Jesus so that we may live it and proclaim it as we go this week. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, It's interesting um, this morning being greeted with a mixture of of news of new life from the Kellys um, and also of the passing of Alice Stone um, and to, to kind of hold that in in its tension. And we're thinking of, of Alice's family and, uh, and grieving with them this morning. And I was even thinking, uh, today marks exactly six years uh, since my aunt passed away unexpectedly. Uh, we were living in Florida at the time, um, and we had uh, two young sons, and uh, trying to explain to them uh, what death was and why mommy and daddy were so emotional Um, It it was a strange year as well. Within a few months, my grandfather passed away. He was my last living grandparent. Uh, We had another death, uh, I think, in our church family. Uh, And so Kasi, especially at three years old, he's he's like thinking about death, you know, and he would say things like, Mommy and Dad, I I don't want to die and leave you. And we'd go, oh, no, no, son, it's not like that, you know. and, And it's hard. It's heavy stuff, especially for kids, but even as adults. And there is something about death and its sort of permanence and its, its, its power that it holds over us, that it wields over us. It's a strange and scary and compelling thing. But what I think that the gospel tells us, and especially in this passage from John in this story of Lazarus, and what I want us to get out of this today is this idea that believing in Jesus means death no longer has power. Believing in Jesus means that death no longer has power. And I want to dive in and and kind of highlight some observations from the passage and see if we can uh, be edified by this together. The story opens where Jesus is off near the place where he was baptized, uh, coincidentally in a place called Bethany. Uh, You know, if you read earlier, and he goes from that Bethany to this Bethany, uh, and Stephen this week asked me, he goes, is there any significance in the two? And I was like, I did not notice that. And that's the kind of like, 
he, he was part of my hermeneutic study, and those are the kinds of questions that you, get you asking and going down deep rabbit holes, and I was so proud. I love that. Uh, and I have no idea. I have no connection. Uh, there's not some deeper hidden meaning in the Greek that I've been able to discover or anything like that. But um, he goes to this place called Bethany. And in fact, uh, today it is not known as Bethany. It is known in its Arabic name uh, as Al-Azariah, uh, literally the place of Lazarus. Um, so you, this place is named for Lazarus and this, this very famous miracle, this seminal kind of peak moment in Jesus's ministry here in Bethany. And we're, we're kind of showed over and over again in the way that Jesus prays, in the way that he greets people, in the way that they go and send word to him that these are close friends. He has a deep love for them. The text even tells us explicitly that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These are close friends, and he has this deep affection for them. And even as, you know, the people are, <coughs> are asking him to come, Jesus says, listen, we're going to hang out for a little bit so that my glory uh, is going to be shown. It is the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And if you recall, when Jesus heals the man born blind, it's something similar where people say, hey, why is this guy born? Was it his sin, his parents' sin? And Jesus said, it is for the purpose of God's glory being shown to you. And so there's something here in, in that same similar vein of Jesus saying, here is why this has happened. It is so that you would see God's glory revealed in his son, me, Jesus. And verse 5 is interesting. Verse 5 and 6, you see, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed. So there's this sense of saying he loved them deeply. And when he heard that Lazarus was at the point right near death, because of that, he stayed longer where he was. And that seems strange. And it's possible, most, most translations, I think, do this really uh, well. Um, every now and then you get a translation that'll say something like, despite this or even so, I, I would contend, I think a better translation is to say, because of this, therefore, so Jesus stayed. And he told his disciples, we're going to stay here a couple of days. And that's a strange thing. Okay, because he's almost dead, because of that reason, we're going to stay here for a couple of days. And they don't really understand that. That's a little bit confusing and interesting, a deliberate choice to wait. And then after a couple of days, he tells them, all right, now we're going to go. And the interesting thing that happens is they don't like this. His disciples confess that, hey, I don't think that we should go near Jerusalem. Why? Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? What are the disciples afraid of? Death. His disciples are afraid that Jesus is going to be killed. This idea of looming death has such power over them. It has such a grip over them that they don't want to go, Jesus, no, let's not do this. And yet, Jesus says, no, we are going. We don't need to be fearful of death. 
and it tips his hand of this bigger, broader theme that believing in Jesus means death no longer has power. You know who's not afraid of death? Jesus. It is not a factor for him. He's not worried about it. He is not concerned the way that his disciples are. But it's interesting because he says, we're going there so that you may believe. He is very explicit in what he says in verse 15. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. This is all for the purpose that we may believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. And there's this interesting point made right in verse 16 before they go where Thomas stands up and he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Which is like, when I read that at first, you're like, all right, a little overdramatic. Maybe chill a little bit, dude. You know, do you have a friend who's a little overdramatic sometimes and you're like, Kit, maybe take it down a notch or something. It feels like that right now with Thomas. But there is an interesting piece of foreshadowing going on here. Because as Thomas says, if Jesus is going to die and that's what he wants to do, then let's also go and die with him. And you know what ends up happening to Thomas later in life? In fact, before the Gospel of John is written, he dies for his faith. Like most of the disciples, he is martyred. Thomas was speared in his side in India proclaiming the gospel. You know the only disciple who was not martyred and lived into his, into his 80s or 90s, a long, nice long life? It's the author, John. And John is writing this in retrospect going, and every one of us, save for me, died for Jesus died with Jesus. There's this really neat foreshadowing that goes on here, and John is giving us this little detail of the disciples' willingness to die with Jesus. Why? Because believing in Jesus means death no longer has power. So he comes and he has this conversation first with Martha. And I got to tell you, if you look at verses 21 and 22, Martha is displaying so much faith in Jesus already. Martha is really, really, like, she's saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Martha is all in on Jesus. They are close. They have a wonderful, loving relationship where Martha recognizes he is special. He is the chosen Messiah, and she recognizes that. And even so, Jesus goes to comfort her, and he says, your brother's going to rise again. And she does that thing where she says, yes, he will someday. Oh, you know, oh, yes, metaphorically, he will rise again, you know, like, and Jesus is going, no, 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 no. And, and she even references a, a, a very orthodox belief uh, within Jewish theology, theology, this notion of a hope in a someday resurrection, all throughout the Old Testament, there is this hope and this promise, and people knew that it was true. In fact, Paul, when he's speaking before the Pharisees, he will claim this. He'll talk about the resurrection that happens someday. Um, and, and you can see this all throughout, especially the poets uh, in Job and in Isaiah. Uh, let me just read you this one from Daniel chapter 12. 
Daniel chapter 12 is talking about this last day, this hope of the last day. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's the deal. Martha knows this. Martha understands that there is a greater hope coming someday. And she is expressing this very good theology to Jesus. And Jesus, just like he did with the people that were talking about manna and the bread of life, he's saying, you read this like it's some future hope someday. And that's good. You're on the right path. Let me give you the answer. It's me. I am here. This hope of someday resurrection that you put your trust in, I'm standing right in front of you. And Jesus has another one of these I am statements that we've been talking about. In the same way he said, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The way that you hope for someday this power of resurrection It's because of me. I'm standing right in front of you. We don't need to talk about it in some abstract, far-off way. I'm right here. And there's even this, like, explicitness in the way that Jesus has to, if you, you know, backing up just a little bit, even when he's talking about, uh, you know, our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep, and the disciples are like, oh, he just fell asleep? That's fine. And he's just like, all right, let me, he's dead, okay? Like, I... I have to spell it out for you people. And this happens over and over again in the Gospel of John, where there's this moment, you know, the disciples come back with bread, and Jesus is like, I have bread that you don't know about. And they're like, did he run to the store? Did you get him some buns? Is he? He's like, I'm the bread. It's the bread, you know. Uh, or like the, the, when he's talking to the, to the Jews and he says, I, where I'm going, you won't find me. And they're like, he's going to hide in the temple? Or is there, where, is there a closet somewhere? He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. And there's this notion of Jesus constantly having to like make things explicit in a way that you had hoped for some someday Messiah. I'm here. I'm in front of you. He is making things concrete for people that had a hope and a belief in some someday out there thing. And he's saying, I'm here now. And um, you know, what's, it's interesting the way that Martha comes back with this really wonderful, beautiful confession and doubles down, you know, even as as much as she's already expressed this hope and this trust and this belief in who Jesus is. Do you remember weeks ago when we talked about layers of belief? She goes a step further when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she knocks it out of the park in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She gets it. She knows. She knows exactly who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Keep that in mind. This is going to come up again in just a little bit. And then he comes and he has this interaction with Mary at the tomb. And it really underscores the relationship that Jesus had with this family. It really underscores the great love and friendship that they shared. 
Jesus comes and he says, show me the body. And he comforts Mary as she is crying. And he doesn't tell her to stop crying. In fact, he joins her in her crying. He himself weeps. And he does so in such a way that everybody goes, man, they must have been close. See how much this guy loved this family. And it's interesting, and as you study the Gospels, I encourage you, anytime you're studying uh, any one of the Gospels, compare it with similar or the same stories in other Gospels. And it'll show you what the author is trying to highlight about Jesus. And if you compare this story of raising Lazarus to other times in the Gospels when Jesus raises someone from the dead, this is very different. In Matthew chapter 9, he's, he's talking with this, uh, this, uh, these people who uh, there's an official of some kind, and his daughter had died. And they said, my daughter has died, will you come? And he comes, and he's very, like, blasé. Like, he's almost indiscreet. It's almost, like, insensitive. You want to be like, dude, this is a funeral. Can you tone it down a little bit with the bluntness? And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says this. He goes, go away. There's all these people that are weeping. And he's like, go away. (laughs) For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And he says this even in a way that makes the other people kind of laugh at him. And and they go, what are you talking about? And then he says, get up. And she does. And they're all like, ah, you know. He's very like just, you know, nonchalant in the way that he's like, she is not dead. What are you guys talking about? Come on, get up. And he heals her. No big deal. No tears, no love, no great angst, no great show me where the body is or anything like that. Compare that to Luke chapter 7. There's a widow whose son had died. And he he even says to her, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep because your son is not dead. And then she raises him, he raises him from the dead. And it's this beautiful moment where Jesus is very confident. He says, I don't want you to cry. Why? Because he's actually alive. Boom. Compare that with the account of Lazarus, where Jesus, minutes from resurrecting him, Jesus knows what is going to happen. Jesus understands he's going to be hugging Lazarus in a few minutes. And still, he takes the time to comfort Mary. He takes the time to he himself grieve and weep a little bit. Grieving, even weeping, doesn't mean that we don't have hope. And especially as we think of loved ones passing away. And I think of Alice's family today and the grief that they're experiencing, even knowing Alice is in a better place. She is in the arms of Jesus. We're going to see her again, folks. That doesn't mean we can't grieve a little bit. That doesn't mean we can't mourn and weep a little bit. Because grief and mourning and hope and and a future trust in Jesus, those are not mutually exclusive. We can have hope and still grieve a little bit too. And If ever you've been in a place where you are grieving and people say to you a little bit insensitively, it's okay, you'll see them again. We know they're in a better place. That is totally true. You can still cry. 
You can still weep, you can still grieve. The two are not mutually exclusive. And then it's interesting, while they're standing there and they're having this conversation, we hear some, you know, some of the crowd, some of the bystanders, who say like, oh, if only he was here sooner. You know, verse 37. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have done that? Oh. And there's this funny kind of rhetoric in a question like this. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Yes, absolutely he could have. But this goes back to why Jesus waited. He loved them, so he waited. He wanted to make sure so that he could show you I am not just going to keep Lazarus from dying. I am going to bring him back from the dead. Keep this man from dying. Let me do you one better. And part of this big theme of come and see within the Gospel of John is that sometimes the expectations and the assumptions that we have for Jesus, it's not that they're wrong, they're just a little too mild. They're just a little bit underestimating his power. When we think of things sometimes where it's like, oh, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Yeah, but he can also raise him from the dead. You know why? Because believing in Jesus means death no longer has this power over us in our lives. And sometimes our expectations for what God can do are far, far, far too small. I was meeting with the LT this week, and they were talking, oh, it was, it was a really wonderful time telling stories about uh, the history of the church and different things, and they were hearkening back to this time when they said, do you remember when we were talking about how cool it would be to have a little office space over here, a little community center where we could like serve the community with some services and maybe even a, a, a small food bank someday? That was their dream, that was their hope, and they go, look at where we are now. God said, no, 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 I've got a much, much, much bigger dream. Sometimes our expectations and our assumptions are simply far too timid and far too small for a God who raises the dead. And we need to dream big dreams and let Jesus do his thing. And we are here with an awesome food bank and a presence in this community and a, and a reputation that is known throughout Lenoxville and a presence here that far exceeded anything that people could have dreamt or imagined. It makes me think of what Paul said to the church in Ephesus. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Maybe your version says, or even imagine. That's our God. That's how much abundantly more he can do. And when we think of death as being this thing that like, ooh, Jesus could, Jesus could prevent it. Surely he could, have, he could have staved it all. He could have stymied death's coming. And Jesus goes, what are you talking about? Prevent it. I'm going to overcome it. Because believing in Jesus means death no longer has power. And it's even interesting the way that Jesus comes and he says, all right, open up the tomb. And suddenly the mood changes. And even Martha, who had been talking to him and saying, I believe you are the Christ, anything that you ask of God, God is going to listen to you. Martha goes, uh, you don't want to do that. He has been dead for four days already. Like there's going to be an odor. There's going to be a stench. 
And it underscores even more what was in Jesus' mind when he said, because I love him so much, we're going to wait a couple more days. Because I want my glory to be shown, because I want you all to really believe I am who I say I am, we're going to stay put, really make sure that he's dead. There is this Jewish belief that the spirit remained for up to three days with the body. But after four days, it was like, no, they really are dead. This isn't mostly dead. This is all dead. Maybe some of you are familiar with the great 20th century theologian, Miracle Max. There's a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. (laughs) Mostly dead is still slightly alive. Lazarus is not mostly dead here. He is all dead. With all dead, there's only one thing you can do. Anyway, if you don't get that reference, listen, there's some sanctification still needs to be done in your life, but that's fine. We'll talk about it. Okay. But the point is this. Jesus is so much greater, so much more powerful, even than death, even than all dead, even than four days and the body started to smell dead. Believing in Jesus means death no longer has any power in our lives. And there is this notion of even Martha here who has this great confession, this great belief in who Jesus is, even Martha expressing some doubt. Wait a second. And Jesus says to her, look at verse 40, where he says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Even Martha, with this excellent, wonderful, right-on confession that we would say, yes, amen, he is the Christ. Even her... She needs some teaching. She needs some reminding. She needs to see God's glory. Folks, there are many of you who have been believers in Jesus for a long time. You know the creeds. You have confessed Jesus as Lord. You absolutely know that our God can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. And still sometimes we need to be humbled. Still sometimes we need to be put in our place. We need to be taught and reminded of who it is that we worship. A God that can do immeasurably more. What believing in Jesus really means that death no longer has power. And that's okay. Older saints, those that have been believers in Jesus for decades, there is still occasionally things for us to learn, right? There is still, on occasion, ways that Jesus is saying, no, 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 you still don't quite understand, let me show you. And isn't it exciting that he does over and over and over again, he shows us that great and wonderful power that he has. The other thing that is really remarkable about what Jesus is doing, just like we talked about with um, healing the man born blind, is that this is what is considered a messianic miracle. This is considered one of those things that just a prophet on his own could not do. Only God would have this kind of power. And Jesus is being very explicit in saying, that is me. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And I think that there is something deeper within this meaning. This is more than just the power over physical life and death. What Jesus is showing is this power over even the idea of death, power over even the the sort of fear, the leverage that death has on us. 
And often, especially in the letters, I'm thinking of Paul in Romans chapter 5 and 6, they describe what it is like new life in Christ as a sort of death and new life. There is something deep in Christ's life that is so much more than his ethical teaching. It is about life and death. It is about saying death no longer has any hold on us. Death will no longer reign in your mortal bodies, Paul says to the believers in Rome. And we far too often kind of think of the life of Jesus as being one of example and showing us the way to live. And is that true? Absolutely. Does Jesus teach us the best way to live? Yes. Does Jesus instruct his disciples to teach everyone what he taught them? Yes, that is part of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. But if we stop there, if we think of Jesus as just a good moral teacher, we're missing the point. In fact, I would say that we are teetering on heresy. Jesus is not just some good example. He is not just some moral teacher. He is the one who saves us from sin and death and hell and has the power to restore our lives. Christ did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. That is the power of the gospel. And yes, there are good ways to live, but may we never forget that at the heart of Jesus' life is him saying, I have the power over death itself. Come to me and experience it. So what? What do we do with this? I've already kind of tipped my hand a little bit about you know, theology and, and thinking about Jesus and his life and, and atonement. So what, what do we do with this story of Lazarus being raised from the dead? How do we today in our lives this week live differently because of the power displayed in Christ, God's son, Jesus of Nazareth, here at Bethany? The first thing I, I think is just overall what Jesus was saying to Mary and Martha and to his disciples we don't need to fear death. Believing in Jesus means that death no longer has power. Believing in Jesus means we don't have to be afraid of death. Yes, we can grieve, but there is something so much bigger in believing in Jesus than anything death could ever frighten us with. And we ought to live in such a way that shows the world we are not afraid of what's coming next because we believe in Jesus. It should show in the way that we plan for death and talk about death and embrace our own physical, physical mortality. It should be in such a way that we say, well, I'll see you. It's not goodbye, it's see you later. And that is really the truth. And I, I hope that when you go to funerals of those that we know to be believers, that it is a celebration, that there's grief, but we can still celebrate. Um, and there's also a, a more kind of theological implication here. Um, <clears throat> when I think about the way we think about Jesus and the gospel, I think that this story illustrates some really good points for us to consider when we think about the atonement. The life of Jesus is more than just ethics or morals. 
the primary emphasis of the gospel, the primary emphasis of the life of Jesus is not his moral teaching, but his atonement for our sins. And there are a lot of ways that people have historically thought about atonement. I would argue some of them better than others. Early on in the church, uh, there was something called Pelagianism, where somebody was teaching, hey, uh, Jesus is a really good example for us. You're not born with any kind of sin nature. You're born with with a, a clean slate and free will to make decisions one way or another, and you should just follow Jesus' example. Or there's semi-Pelagianism, which says, yeah, we're born with this kind of, uh, we're sick. You know, we're, we're kind of sick, and we need Jesus' example to help us choose the right path. Both of these things are heresies. They are condemned. The church said, no, that is not what this is about. If you hear that here, we will correct you. You will not hear that taught in this, in this building, okay? That is not uh, how we view the atonement. And there's this other idea that, that became popular kind of through the, the Renaissance and Middle Ages and, and, you know, 600 years ago and so. And for, for lack of a better word, maybe we'll just call this the, the Arminian view. Uh, if you don't care for that label, then drum up another one. It's fine. Uh, but we're like... Yes, but mankind, this sickness is not just a cold. This is severe. This is a sickness that is debilitating. This is a sickness that absolutely knocks us out cold, and we cannot do anything without Jesus' help. We cannot save ourselves. We need Jesus' help in getting well again. And I have to tell you, There are people who believe this. There are people in this church who believe this view and espouse this view. I have no trouble interacting with people who espouse this view. I I count them as, as friends and brothers, and I would have no issues working with them. But respectfully, I believe that they are wrong. Respectfully, I believe that what we have is not a sickness. We are not so sick that we need Jesus's help. We are dead, and we need resurrection. We are dead in our sins. In fact, to quote Jesus, we must be born again through new life in Christ. How do we do that? Believing in Jesus. And I am not talking about, this is not mostly dead, it's all dead, okay? (laughs) Believing in Jesus means that death has no power over us. And if you think of Jesus as someone that helps you get better. If you think of Jesus as someone who serves as a good example so that you can make the right choices that make you right with God, I'm going to push back. I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit. Know this, the only way that you are made right with God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus because you yourselves were born spiritually dead and we must be born again. That is the great miracle that Jesus offers us. Because believing in Jesus means death no longer has any power. I've gone way over. I'm sorry. You got me preaching up here. Let's pray. God, we we praise you that you hold the keys to life and death, that you have conquered the grave, that even as death has this great hold on so many, that it is a fearful serious, sobering thing 
that you show us through your son, Jesus. We do not need to be afraid that Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And I pray that we would find our life in you and you alone. May we always, always proclaim that truth in all that we do. Amen.